Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Anniston, Alabama. The city is located in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains and was founded in 1872. It was originally going to be called Woodstock for the Woodstock Iron Company that was located there, but after discovering another town with the same name in Alabama, it was renamed to Annie's Town in honor of the wife of the Woodstock Iron Company's president. The founders had a vision to create a town that was progressive and forward-thinking in its growth and development, ensuring a strong quality of life for its citizens and surrounding communities. But in 1979, it was discovered that one of its upstanding citizens was destroying the quality of life for those closest to them. Frank Hilly and Audrey Marie Frazier both grew up in the Blue Mountain area of rural Anniston, Alabama. Frank was a senior in high school, and Marie, as she was called, was a freshman when they became high school sweethearts and stayed together after Frank joined the Navy shortly after graduating from high school. Frank and Marie got married on May 8, 1951, while he was on leave and just before Marie graduated from high school. Wow. Exactly. Kath, I heard somewhere that Marie actually came onto his radar when she was 12 and he was 16. Ew. Yeah, and her parents were not pleased with that. Of course not. Exactly. So how did she come onto his radar? So all I know is that she was a very pretty girl, and in seventh grade, she was voted best looking in her class. And because it was such a small town, he had to have known who she was. That's what I'm thinking. Almost six months after their marriage, the Navy awarded Frank a meritorious mass medal on October 30th, 1951. The medal recognizes exceptionally meritorious service in a position of great responsibility while assigned to a joint services activity. It is the military's highest joint service decoration and the highest non-combat award. In November of 1952, their first child, Michael, was born. When Frank left the Navy, he enrolled at Jacksonville State College, receiving a Bachelor of Science degree in 1958, and got a job at Union Foundry, a large manufacturing plant. They moved to a bigger house in a nice area of Anniston, and their daughter, Carol, was born eight years after Michael in 1960. Now, a little bit about Marie. Her parents were mill workers. She was born during the Depression, and she was their only child. And is that why her mom was working? I'm sure that is why. And Marie was raised largely by relatives because her parents worked so hard. And they, they were the kind of parents who were like, we want you to have a better life. We want you to be a secretary which at the time was a very fancy position for a woman. Right. Especially from their socioeconomic demographic. So they strive more for their daughter. However, they allowed her to be somewhat undisciplined and they spoiled her. Which makes sense. Yeah. They gave her things rather than their time, you know, because they were both working. And so she had this reputation for always having nicer clothes than the kids around her. At some point, they moved away from the rural community in which she was raised and into Anniston, and she became a small fish in a big pond rather than a big fish in a small pond. And she was probably the kid in school who was like, the first to get the swatch watch, the first to get the iPad, you know? <laughs> back in exactly. 1950 style. <laughs> anyway, so their marriage, her marriage to Frank was always fraught a little bit with financial issues because she was a spender. Well, and she was used to spending all of it on her. She was very self-indulgent. And so when he was in the Navy, he sent all of his paychecks home to her. And then at some point he says, OK, I'm now being moved stateside. I'm going to Long Beach, California, come out and meet me. And she had no money to do so, which shocked him. Wow. Because they're supposed to be saving for their future. And basically, she had nice jewelry, nice clothing. And she looked awesome. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, whatever. She was young and. Well, she wasn't taught differently, though, either. No, she, she wasn't taught differently. And, you know, it's like you're young, you're dumb. You have this money, you spend it on yourself. Well, right. But, but especially, you know, you're married before. Well, she was 18, but she was 
married before she even graduated high school. Right. Having to save and scrimp and do that type of stuff, that's something you learn. And if she's by herself and has no expenses except for herself, she's going to follow what she was taught. She eventually realizes her dream of becoming a secretary and then becomes an executive secretary. So she's making money during their marriage. Frank's making money. They have these two kids. However, she is spending more than they have. He does not know it. And Frank has actually a really solid reputation for being a good guy, pays his bills on time, all that kind of stuff. He was a Navy man. Exactly. So during the course of their relationship, she would hide bills from him. At one point, she opened a safe deposit box and had the bill sent there. At some point, she even took out loans in his name, totally unbeknownst to him. So she was always robbing Peter to pay Paul. 14 years after Carol was born, in late 1974, Frank and his son Mike began suffering from nausea and flu-like symptoms. Both were diagnosed with a viral stomach flu and suffered symptoms for several weeks. Thankfully, once Mike left to return to school at Atlanta Christian College, his symptoms went away very quickly. Frank's symptoms never went away and continued to get worse. There were days when he could not go to work because he was so weak. On May 19, 1975, Frank's condition was so bad that he went to the doctor complaining of nausea and tenderness in his abdomen. Dr. Earl Jones diagnosed his condition as a viral stomach ache. Four days later, when the condition persisted, Frank was admitted to Regional Medical Center in Anniston. Blood tests indicated acute liver malfunction, and Dr. Jones diagnosed Frank's condition as infectious hepatitis. Frank Hilly died two days later in the early morning hours of May 25, 1975. He was 45 years old. Due to the suddenness of his death, Dr. Jones requested that Marie allow him to perform an autopsy, which she did. The autopsy revealed swelling of the kidneys and lungs, bilateral pneumonia, and an inflammation of the stomach and duodenum. The cause of death was determined to be infectious hepatitis. Marie and 15-year-old Carol now had to find a way to navigate life without Frank. Mike was now married and an ordained minister living with his wife in Florida, so it was just Marie and Carol. Frank Hilly had a $32,000 life insurance policy, of which Marie was named the beneficiary, and in 2022 dollars, that's about $172,000. It could have bought a nice house in Alabama back then, that thirty-two grand. Oh yeah, absolutely. The money was a great help, and Marie did her best to keep up outward appearances. One of the things I read, Kath, was that she actually did spend some of the money on Mike and Carol. I know she bought Carol a car and I want to say gave her some jewelry. Like there was something like, so she shared the money. But yes, outward appearances were important for her. According to an episode of Snapped, season 27, episode 12, entitled Marie Hilly, Carol Hilly said that she and her mom never really got along when she was growing up. She was a tomboy and her mother was always well-dressed and the epitome of Southern charm, and Carol did not particularly adhere to those standards. So when she was a senior, she decided to go to prom, and that was in the spring of 1979, and mom was all excited, you know. Oh, I bet. Yeah, so she took Carol dress shopping and, you know, had her hair and makeup done and all that kind of stuff. So that night, Carol started getting sick, and she remembers feeling nauseated all night, but she thought, you know, I'm just nervous because I'm at prom. And she's dressed all fancy and probably wearing high heels. Exactly. And everything's uncomfortable, right. but you have to pretend it's not. Right. And you got to <laughs> dance when you really just want to take your shoes off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she also thought maybe it was something she ate. But a few days later, it got worse. And within a month, she started feeling tingling in her feet. So in August of 1979, the end of that summer, along with the tingling in her feet, she felt numbness in her fingers and weakness in her legs in addition to the nausea. So these, you know, I'm going to call them neurological symptoms she had never had before. So she's freaking out. Her mom's nervous about it. So August 22nd, 1979, Marie takes her daughter Carol to the hospital where she was admitted by Dr. Warren Sorrell. Over the course of the next week, Dr. Sorrell was unable to diagnose the problem and fearing her symptoms were psychosomatic, that she was creating them herself, he sent her to see Dr. John Elmore at Caraway Methodist Hospital. Now, that was about an hour away in Birmingham, and this guy was a psychiatrist, and he was going to evaluate her. Three weeks later, on September 18, 1979, Marie asked Dr. Elmore what was wrong with Carol. He said this was not a psychosomatic situation. 
He told Marie that Carol suffered from malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies and that he thought lead or other metal poisonings might be the cause and he wanted to do further testing. So here's Carol in the hospital and she gets a call from a girlfriend, Eve Cole, and they know each other from church. And Eve's like, hey, Carol, how's it going? And she's like, oh, I'm not doing well. You know, I'm getting worse. But, you know, my mom is also trying to help me by giving me these injections while I'm in the hospital. And so Eve has this memory of being present with Carol and Carol's mom when Marie had given Carol an injection at home. Oh, wow. Yeah. Eve is now concerned. And I don't know what she was thinking. Probably like, why is her mom still giving her injections in the hospital? Or giving her them at all. Yeah. So she calls Frank's sister, Frida. And Frida is concerned, and she contacts Carol's brother, Mike, in Florida. So for Frida, Frank's sister, it felt like deja vu. Because Frida remembered when Frank was sick, Marie had offered to give him injections. And was actually giving them to him at home. Correct. So Frida called Carol's brother, Mike, and asked him if he knew if Carol was getting injections. Mike didn't know the answer to this, so he actually called Carol in the hospital room and asked her, And she said no, because what Mike didn't know is that her mom was right there next to her. So Mike followed that up with a question of, do you promise me that's true? And she also said no. Mike hung up the phone and he immediately called the hospital to ask the doctor if Marie was supposed to be giving Carol shots. And Mike was told that Marie was never authorized to give Carol anything. Mike then called Aniston police to tell them about the injections. So this isn't the first time he's had a concern about them. He actually had grown suspicious about his mother giving his dad all those injections when he was suffering from these flu-like symptoms. And knowing that his mom was also giving these injections to Carol while she was in the hospital getting worse, that was why he called. Surprisingly, the police told Mike that they had been monitoring his mother for some time because of fraudulent financial activity. Exactly. Totally unrelated to medical issues. Right. But like you said, it was because she was robbing Peter to pay Paul. And apparently it made it to the level of the police. Because Mike was now beginning to realize that his dad may not have died from natural causes, he also sent a letter to the district attorney to detail what had happened leading up to his father's death. The other thing that was interesting, Kathy, that came out with this is that when Marie was giving Carol these shots in the hospital, she told Carol not to tell a single soul because Marie told Carol that she had gotten the medication that was in the injection from a nurse in the hospital to help make Carol better, but the nurse was not supposed to have done that. So Marie told Carol, if you tell anybody that I'm doing this, you're going to get the nurse fired. And so as a result, Carol never told anyone, including Mike. So Mike talked to authorities about possibly exhuming his father's body to see what his cause of death may have been and might he have been poisoned. But he was told that before they could exhume a body, they would need more evidence. So here we are with Dr. Elmore telling Marie that Carol had possible lead poisoning and he wanted to do further tests. By the way, he now knows that Marie is giving unauthorized injections. So during this conversation, he tells Marie, we're going to do further testing. And I think it'd be good for your daughter if you stayed away from the hospital. To give her some time to see what happens to her symptoms. Yeah, because he's thinking like, what the heck is this lady doing? So she, of course, is totally upset at the conversation and pulls her daughter out of the hospital. Now, Carol's 19 and could probably make her own medical decisions. But of course, like she's tied to her mom's apron strings. So mom takes Carol out of the hospital against medical advice and goes to a motel for one night. So even though she went to the motel that night, Carol, of course, is still suffering. So the next morning, Marie had her admitted to a different hospital in Birmingham. This is the University of Alabama hospital. But when she gets in the hospital and she gets all settled, Marie is then arrested for bad check charges and was taken to the Anniston City Jail, leaving Carol alone in the hospital as Dr. Elmore had wanted in the first place. Right. Kath, I believe this was actually the second time mom had been arrested for bad checks. And I can't remember if charges were brought the first time. And I don't believe they were. I know she was arrested, but I think because she was able to pay it off, they did not charge her for it. Okay. And so she is actually arrested this time. And the bank is the victim. So she writes bad checks. And I I can't remember. What was it for? Well, one of them was for furniture. It was about $2,000 for furniture. Okay. And then the other was she deposited a check from a Florida bank account that she had that was closed. But of course, the bank didn't know that. It was a check for $5,000. And she withdrew $4,500 from the account. 
And of course, the check bounced. I do know at some point she put down a bad check on an apartment that she and Carol were going to live in. But anyway, so the, the bank is the victim. The bank insisted on, you know, charges being filed. So she's put in jail, which was perfect timing because Absolutely. You know, like, Dr. Elmore wanted her away anyway. Right. And so now this helps the new doctor, Dr. Brian Thompson, who was assigned as her doctor at the University of Alabama Hospital. Upon his initial examination, he discovered that Carol's hands were numb, her feet were numb, she had nerve palsy causing drop foot, and Carol had lost most of her deep tendon reflexes. Dr. Thompson also discovered that Aldridge Mies lines were present in Carol's toenails and fingernails. Mies lines are usually described as white bands that run across portions of the nail bed, but these little sections can actually be anywhere on the nail. Common causes of these lines include cardiac failure and severe infection, which the doctors were able to rule out. But Dr. Thompson knew that Aldridge Mies lines are also a symptom of arsenic poisoning. Dr. Thompson conducted tests on samples of Carol's hair and discovered that her hair had about 50 times the normal arsenic levels than one would typically find in human hair. Apparently, all of our hair has arsenic in it, but it's very low levels of it. Yeah, that's what I was surprised to find out. Low levels are normal. And being poisoned through our head. Exactly. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Maybe that's what's wrong with my brain. There you go. <laughs> Additional tests on Carol's hair conducted two weeks later, so we're now at October 3rd of 1979, by a doctor with the Alabama Department of Forensic Scientists. These tests revealed arsenic levels ranging from over 100 times the normal level close to the scalp to zero times the normal level at the end of the hair. This indicated that Carol had been given increasingly larger doses of arsenic over a period of four to eight months. So this is basically, Kath, it's closest to the scalp, right, because that's the new hair and that has all the poisons that are in her system. But based on how long her hair was and where they didn't find any at the end, they could tell by normal hair growth really how long she'd been being poisoned. And I wonder if they're saying 50 times the normal arsenic levels because they're simply taking an average. Probably. Yeah, I don't know. Once diagnosed, Dr. Thompson was able to treat Carol's condition, and without her mother present at the hospital, she improved steadily while she was at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Police spoke with the district attorney's office and decided to look further into Frank Hilly's cause of death. But as we know, Mike Hilly was told that an exhumation could not occur without further evidence. So on October 3, 1979, when Carol's test results came back from the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences, revealing such an extraordinarily high level of arsenic in her system, the police had the additional evidence that they needed. So the district attorney went in and got an order of exhumation for Frank Hilly's body. So Frank Hilly's body was actually exhumed the same day, October 3rd, 1979. So these people were actually operating at light speed. H. Chip Walls of the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences performed tests on samples taken from Frank's body. The analysis revealed abnormally high levels of arsenic, ranging from 10 times the normal level in hair samples to 100 times the normal level in toenail samples. As a result of these tests, Dr. Joseph Embry of the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences concluded that Frank Hilly's cause of death was not infectious hepatitis, but was in fact acute arsenic poisoning. Dr. Embry also noted that Frank Hilly suffered from chronic arsenic poisoning, meaning that he had been slowly poisoned over time, a number of months, in fact, up until his death. So, Kath, one other thing is that police discovered that in 1978, so about a year before Carol started getting really sick and was admitted to the hospital, Marie took out two life insurance policies on Carol. Now, each were $25,000, but in 2022 dollars, that's $110,000 for each policy. The reason the police were triggered on this is what parent takes out a life insurance policy on a child? Yeah. I mean, she was 18 yeah. when the policy was taken out. Okay. Right. And <laughs> why? Why are you expecting to outlive your child? Exactly. Exactly. Three days after Frank Hilly's body was exhumed, Marie Hilly, who was still in Anniston City Jail on bad check charges, was arrested for the attempted murder by poisoning of Carol Hilly. A medicine vial, which was in her purse at the time of her arrest, was now in the possession of the Anniston police. The police removed the vial for testing and washings from the bottle revealed the presence of arsenic. Two weeks later, Frank's sister Frida 
started trying to find evidence to help prove that Marie killed her brother and tried to kill her niece. Frida took a bottle of rat and mouse poison from Marie's belongings, which had been stored in Frida's basement. So she takes him to police and goes, hey, I found this in the belongings that she left in my basement. You might want to test it. Analysis of this bottle revealed the presence of a 1.4 to 1.5% arsenic solution. Do you have any idea if that's bad? Yes. It's okay. very high. It was because it was part of rat poison. Got it. Okay. Once it was determined that Frank died from being poisoned, authorities in Calhoun County exhumed the body of Mrs. Lucille Frazier. She was Marie's mother and died two years after Frank in 1977 of what family friends had said was cancer. On October 11, 1979, toxicologist Dr. Joseph Embry, this is the same person who did some of the tests on Frank, said that arsenic was found in Mrs. Frazier's liver. It was the only test they conducted, and since it was only a trace amount, it was not enough to cause death and could have been a level naturally found in the body. Additional tests were ordered to determine if tissue samples from other organs contained enough arsenic to have poisoned or killed her. It was actually determined later after the final autopsy results were received, Kath, that her mother did have this trace level, but she actually died of breast cancer. On October 25, 1979, Marie was indicted for the attempted murder by poisoning of Carol Hilly, feloniously issuing a worthless check and obtaining money under false pretense. Two weeks later, on November 9, 1979, Marie bonded out on the three charges for $14,000. Now, Kath, you know, I couldn't find anything in the court documents which showed the actual amount of the bond. But I do know that five people came together to raise money for the bond. So my impression, although I didn't see it anywhere, because normally you go to a bail bondsman, you put down 10%, it's a non-refundable 10%, and this person gets kicked. My understanding is that Marie did not have any equity in a house at the time. Right. And no other assets. You know, and she's in there for check fraud. Right. I think that she couldn't get a bail bondsman to post a bond. So I think the bond was was literally $14,000 because what I do know is that five people in the community came together and paid the bond. Wow. Yeah. So an incredibly low bond, in my opinion, for attempted murder. Right. (laughs) Of your child. Yes, exactly. Less than a week after her release, Marie's attorney, Wilton Lane, checked Marie into a roadway inn in the Birmingham suburb of Homewood under the name Emily Stevens. I'm sure he did so to protect her privacy. Nine days goes by without him having contact with her, but he's now supposed to meet with her on November 18th, 1979. So he arrives at her motel room and she's gone. He calls the police and reports her missing. So the Homewood detectives kick into action. They see that there is no sign of struggle in her room. Some of her belongings were still there. And they say they found a note in her room, which was actually what led her attorney to call the police. So it was funny, Kathy. The note was reported in the newspaper as being a kidnapping note. And the police at the time said, no, no, it did not say she was kidnapped. What it actually said from newspaper reports is, I have taken her, do not come after her, or I will harm her, you know, that kind of thing. So they had no idea. That sounds like a kidnapping note to me. It does, but I think they were trying to be very precise. It did not say, I have kidnapped her, or she is being kidnapped. Right. The next day, Calhoun County Coroner Ralph Phillips transported the body of Carrie Hilly, who was Marie Hilly's mother-in-law, to Birmingham for autopsy. Basically, they're like, who else died in this family? Absolutely. Collect the bodies. Now they're at, what, three that they've exhumed? Exactly. So anyway, so she died the prior day at a hospital in Anniston where she had been under treatment for some time. So the coroner and the Calhoun DA, Bob Fields, told reporters they learned from doctors that there were trace amounts of arsenic found in tests that had been conducted before Mrs. Hilly passed away. The coroner and the DA said they believed Carrie Hilly died of natural causes, but were ordering an autopsy simply to be sure. And the autopsy concluded that arsenic was not a factor in her death, despite its presence in tissue. On December 13, 1979, four weeks after Marie disappeared, the Calhoun County DA's office asked the FBI to issue an interstate flight to avoid prosecution warrant 
for Marie Hilly after she failed to appear the week prior in Calhoun County Circuit Court to stand trial on the charge of attempting to murder her daughter. In early January 1980, a federal warrant was issued and an FBI spokesman said the agency would begin looking for Marie Hilly by running down leads and various pieces of information they received. Since it was now a federal charge due to interstate flight, the warrant gave federal and state law enforcement the authority to arrest her anywhere. An indictment charging Marie Hilly with the 1975 poisoning death of her husband Frank was issued in her absence that same month, January 1980. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Killer D. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Fast forward more than three years to January 4, 1983. Detective Barry Hunter of the New Hampshire State Police began an investigation into the death of a woman named Robbie Homan, whose obituary had appeared in the Keene, New Hampshire Sentinel newspaper almost two months prior on November 13, 1982. The obituary that was placed in the New Hampshire newspaper announced the death of a woman named Robbie Homan on November 9th enlisted her survivors as Terry Martin of Dallas, her husband John Homan of New Hampshire, and a mother and father, Hugh and Cindy Grayson, of Buffalo, New York. The obituary also said Robbie Homan had been affiliated with the Sacred Heart Church in Tyler, Texas, and the body had been donated to the Texas Medical Research Institute. The reason this caught the attention of the New Hampshire detectives is they were looking for a fugitive named Terry Clifton. And when they saw that there was a woman named Terry Martin in this obituary, They wondered if this might be an alias and it might give them clues if they were able to get in touch with family members. But do you know, like, what was it that put this on their radar? I mean, it's it's weird to me that detectives see an obituary and go like, oh, that might be our fugitive. The reason they were looking into it is they had actually received a phone call several days earlier from somebody at a business in New Hampshire that said they thought the person who was named in the obituary was fake. So... The detective started looking into the obituary, wondering, could it be this fugitive? They also had another female fugitive they were looking for, for bank robbery. Fugitives all over the place in New Hampshire. As they started looking into this obituary, they realized that every single thing in it was a lie. 
and the obituary talked about the church in Texas and the Medical Research Institute, neither institution existed. So they called in the FBI, believing that this entire obituary was related to a federal fugitive by the name of Terry Clifton. The FBI began an investigation and started with the one name in the obituary that was correct, and that is the name of John Homan, who actually was a resident in New Hampshire. And John Homan is the surviving spouse of the dead individual in the obituary. Correct. So the FBI talks to John Homan, and he confirms that he is, in fact, the surviving spouse of the woman named in the obituary, Robbie Homan. And that Terry Martin, who was listed in the obituary as Robbie Homan's sister, was in fact in New Hampshire at that point. Now remember, this Terry Martin name was what had drawn the attention of New Hampshire police, thinking it might be Terry Clifton. So now the FBI wants to bring in Terry Martin and interview her. Exactly. So the FBI agents went to Terry Martin's place of work and asked her to come in for questioning, which she did. Once at the station, the FBI and police informed her that they had reason to believe that she was someone other than who she claimed to be and advised her of her constitutional rights. After they had done this, she actually admitted to the police that her real name was Audrey Murray Hilly and that she was wanted in Alabama on bad check charges. So, Kath, here's the crazy thing. This was completely by accident. Right. They think this is someone else for some other issue. Could be two other someones. Yeah, and she comes into the station and she's like, yep, I'm wanted in Alabama. You guys are looking for me. (laughs) So, in explaining her false identity, she confirmed to investigators that after she fled from the Broadway Inn in late 1979, she traveled to Florida under an alias and met a man named John Homan, who she began living with and eventually married him, and they had moved to New Hampshire. In late summer of 1982, Marie, who was now going by Robbie Homan, told her husband that she needed to attend a family business in Texas and see a doctor in Texas about an illness she had. Before leaving on her trip, though, she mentioned to her husband for the first time that she had an identical twin sister named Terry Martin. How long had they been married at this point? Two years. Okay. A month or so after Marie went to Texas, John Homan received a phone call from a woman who called herself Terry Martin and told him she was Robbie's twin sister. And she was calling to tell him that his wife passed away. Terry also let him know that there was no need for him to go to Texas because the family donated the body to medical science. So Marie Hilly, who was going by Robbie Holman, was basically trying to set up her own death. Right. Okay. And her own reappearance. Exactly. A couple months later after her quote unquote death in mid-November of 1982, Marie returned to New Hampshire after changing her hair color and losing some weight and met John Homan posing as Terry Martin. So now they're comforting each other, right? It's his wife died, her twin sister died. I think like the weight that she lost to change her appearance wasn't super substantial. It was like 20 pounds. Yeah. Anyway, so Terry, a.k.a. Marie Hilly, moves in with John and lives in the spare bedroom of his house. And John, who has maybe really serious cataracts. Or blinders on. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't want to see that this is actually his wife who... Faked her death and reappeared as somebody else. As her twin sister. Right. Crazy. John Holman then goes to his former dead wife's employer, Book Press, and says, Hey, here's her twin sister. Terry Martin, can you give her a job? And they're like, sure, come on in. But all of these people who worked, you know, her colleague, they recognized her as being the same person. So the husband can't see or doesn't want to see that this is really his wife who faked her death. All the coworkers were like, wait, what? That's the same lady. (laughs) And it got to the point that they were so suspicious of her that her supervisor actually called the police. So the supervisor sees the obituary of the woman who used to work with him and now is faking herself as a twin and calls the New Hampshire police. Like, hey, something's up with this. And that's what started the ball rolling. Really quickly, Kath, one thing I wanted to say is that when Marie Hilly, as Robbie Homan, got this job at Book Press, her manager said that he never checked her references because the place where she had worked in Texas had closed down. Remember, this is like 1980. (laughs) So as... Up until probably like 2000, maybe, nothing ever got checked because it was not as easy. No college degrees, anything like that. And I will say personally, when I got a job in college 
as a waitress. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually worked for a place that closed down, too. I I did the same thing, except I was probably a really bad liar because they didn't give me a job. (laughs) According to an article in the Birmingham Post-Herald on January 13, 1983, Cecil Moses, the special agent in charge of the FBI field office in Birmingham, said the reconstruction of Marie's secret life over the past three years revealed one of the most incredible charades he had ever encountered. Agent Moses said that when the FBI entered the case in late 1979, they knew Marie was using an alias and had likely traveled to Fort Lauderdale when she fled Alabama, but after that the trail went cold. When friends and relatives of Marie Hilly heard about the circumstances surrounding her arrest, it did not come as a surprise to some of them. Frank Hilly's sister, Frida, told the Birmingham Post-Herald that Marie had talked for years about having a twin. Frida and Marie's daughter, Carol, once found a note written by Marie talking about her twin sister, but it was a figment of Marie's imagination. She never had a twin. Frida also said that before her brother Frank's death, Marie would write fake letters to herself from fictitious boyfriends. And so, Kath, I did read that at some point in the marriage, she would wave these letters in front of Frank's face and be like, look, these are people who really like me. But she wouldn't let him read them. She would tear them up in front of his face. She admitted it. She basically said, yes, I was afraid you didn't love me anymore and I was trying to make you jealous. So Frida said that Marie's fear of not being loved went back to Marie's childhood because she always felt unloved by her parents. Aniston police also revealed they became aware of Marie a couple years before her arrest for allegedly poisoning family members. So we had previously talked about the financial fraud, but Lieutenant Gary Carroll, who headed the poisoning investigation, said that Marie had filed a number of complaints about harassing phone calls, people following her, people coming to her home late at night and stealing, you know, trivial things. And so there was one point in time when she would call Lieutenant Carroll almost daily to report things. They actually took her seriously, initially anyway, putting tracing equipment on her phone, but it never recorded any harassing call. You know, the other thing, Kathy, talking about the arsenic poisoning as well, the police said after Marie was arrested for trying to kill her daughter and killing her husband, that when the police went out on all of these calls, and and like you said, it was almost on a daily basis, it was a Southern household. So they would walk in and Marie would serve them pie and offer them coffee. And of course they would eat. What was the problem? And they said afterwards, was she poisoning the police? Can you imagine? No. That's crazy. Six days after Marie's capture on January 19, 1983, Marie Hilly was returned to jail in Calhoun County, Alabama. In deference to her claims of fearing for her life upon returning, Calhoun County authorities did not notify the media of her travel plans, and they arranged for her lawyer, Wilton Lane, to be present when she arrived. She was put in a jail cell by herself and was arraigned the next day on the charge of killing her husband. So now remember, she was indicted in absentia of Frank's murder. After she dipped? Oh, God, it's been a long time since you've had an opportunity to say that. (laughs) It has been a long time. She dipped. That makes you so happy. It really does. (laughs) Marie Hilly was scheduled to be arraigned that Monday on January 24th, but at the last minute, her attorney notified the court that she would rather file a written plea than appear in the courtroom. Judge Sam Monk then set her new bond at $320,000, which in 2022 dollars is almost a mil. That's good. That's an appropriate bond. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm guessing she still can't get a bail bondsman to give her any money. (laughs) And two days later, Marie's defense attorney submitted a plea of not guilty. Oh, and by the way, on the previous bond, you know, obviously she escapes. All that money was forfeited. That $14,000 that those five people raised, they tried to bang down the courthouse to like get the money back. And they're like, sorry, you vouch for her. You Absolutely. Just never put a bond for anyone. (laughs) (laughs) A month after Marie's arraignment, Calhoun County District Attorney Bob Field filed a request for a psychological examination of Marie Hilly to determine Marie Hilly's competency to stand trial. After a hearing, Judge Sam Monk ordered two Calhoun psychologists to determine if she was competent to stand trial and understood the nature of the charges against her and would be able to aid in her own defense. Almost two weeks later, based on the psychological examinations, Judge Monk ruled that Marie Hilly was mentally competent to stand trial. The judge also agreed with a prosecution request to combine the murder and attempted murder charges into one trial 
stating it would not damage Marie's right to a fair trial. And Kath, sometimes they do this when the circumstances are the same or... um, Highly similar? Pretty much, yeah. Trial began on Monday, May 30th, 1983 with jury selection. The 14 jurors included two alternates and was comprised of 12 men and two women. Judge Monk sequestered the jury for the duration of the trial and forbid the jurors from discussing the case or obtaining media reports of the trial. Kathy, one thing that was interesting that I saw is I don't think they do this now. I'm pretty sure they don't do it now. But with all of the jurors, they listed their names, their ages and their occupations. (laughs) It was like a hit list. (laughs) It was. But the other thing that newspapers noted was that all of those struck from a prospective juror list by the defense fell into certain categories. Everyone who was a nurse and most who were married to nurses were struck. So were people associated with law enforcement or related to police. And then people who knew the family or any of the attorneys were also removed. That one I get. So in deference to the inflammatory emotions surrounding the trial, bailiffs with metal detectors screened anyone entering the courtroom, and the judge ordered that spectator movement be kept to a minimum, which I thought that was an odd thing. He also barred all cameras and tape recorders. Carol Hilly, Marie's daughter, was slated as the first prosecution witness. When she took the stand, she testified that during the months she suffered from arsenic poisoning, she developed nausea whenever her mother prepared or brought her meals. She talked about the two injections her mother told her would cure her partial paralysis, only for it to get worse. And she said that by the time doctors discovered she was being poisoned, she could not stand, dress herself, or walk without help. She testified that her mother told her not to tell anybody about the injections, as we had said previously, because the nurse who gave her the medication would have been fired. On the third day of trial, Marie Hilly took the witness stand without the jury present in the courtroom. She testified because she was protesting the admissibility of a statement she gave to the police six days after her arrest and told the court she was not read her rights or allowed an attorney, nor was she told she was being recorded. So basically, this is an in-camera hearing to determine whether or not the prosecution could admit certain evidence. So she took the stand and she said, hey, they didn't read me my rights. They didn't offer me an attorney. They didn't tell me it was being recorded, blah, 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 blah. So the judge also asked questions during this hearing and basically was like, hey, man, for somebody who didn't want to talk, This was a two-hour interview. You know, he was basically implying that she was not being coerced to speak. Judge Monk ruled that her taped statement was admissible because state prosecutors provided testimony and a tape recording that showed her rights had been read to her and that she was aware that she was being recorded. So basically, the judge listened to the tape and decided, no, the tape has more credibility than this woman's testimony. Oh, Kath, during the two-hour interview, I think one of the other reasons she didn't want it admitted is, remember, we had talked about her mom, Mrs. Frazier, having been exhumed and tested for arsenic. It was a small trace amount that was there, but it was actually breast cancer that killed her. But during this two-hour taped interview, Marie admitted to Lieutenant Carroll that she had started giving her mother occasional injections of arsenic right after her husband, Frank, died. Even though it didn't kill her, I have to imagine that it really harmed the ability of her body to fight breast cancer. Right. It might have been not the causal connection of her death, but I can't imagine that arsenic would have helped the cancer. Agreed. (laughs) So, Kath, there was also somebody who testified that is actually your favorite person to always testify. A jailhouse snitch. A woman named Priscilla Lang testified on the fourth day of trial and told the court that she'd shared a cell with Marie in the Calhoun County Jail for several weeks. And it was during that time that Lang said Marie told her she killed her husband by poisoning, and that she accomplished it by placing a little arsenic at a time into her husband's food. After that, the state rested its case. Defense attorneys immediately asked the judge to dismiss the charges against their client on the basis the state had failed to prove she poisoned anyone, and Judge Monk denied the request. The case went to the jury on June 8, 1983, at 10.30 a.m., 11 days after the trial began. After three hours of deliberation, the jury found Audrey Marie Hilly guilty of murdering her husband Frank in 1975 and attempting to murder her daughter Carol four years later. The murder conviction carried an automatic sentence of life in prison, and Judge Monk decided the sentence on the attempted murder conviction would be 20 years. Marie Hilly began serving her sentence in 1983 at the Julia Tutwiler State Prison for Women, a medium security prison in Wetumpka, about two hours south of Anniston. Medium security for a murder charge? I know. I, I wonder, you know, and, and at one point, wasn't she transferred to a minimum security or am I making that up? No, you're not making it up. It's actually while she was at Tutwiler that she was classified as minimum risk. That's incredible. I know. 
Maybe it's because it was passive. But this is a lady who snowed everybody. Everybody. She was a total, like, bless your heart kind of lady. (laughs) (laughs) Marie Hilly appealed her conviction in the Court of Criminal Appeals of Alabama. She brought up nine items on appeal, including that the search of her purse by the Anniston, Alabama authorities when she was in jail for check fraud was a violation of her Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. The records reveal that the purse had been inventoried and searched four times, once in Birmingham upon arrest, once in Birmingham prior to transporting her to Anniston, and twice after she arrived in Anniston. During each of these searches, a note was made of all the contents in the purse, including the medicine vials. And the bottom line is the Court of Appeal said, sorry, sister, the police had you in legitimate custody. They had the right to do an inventory search. There's an uninterrupted chain of custody. They basically had the right. You have no expectation of privacy in this vial once you're arrested. Marie also contended that the state failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Frank Hilly died as a result of arsenic poisoning and further failed to prove that she ever administered arsenic to her husband, Frank Hilly. She contended the trial court erred when it did not grant a motion for directed judgment of acquittal based on the foregoing reasons. And the Court of Appeal basically said, hey, look, Dr. Joseph Embry testified. You know, he's a forensic pathologist. He said Frank Hilly died from arsenic poisoning. They also had a toxicologist testify to essentially the same thing. And the court said, look, there's no direct evidence that somebody knew that on a particular day that you were administering arsenic to your husband. However, circumstantial evidence could be used to prove that ultimate fact. And the Court of Appeal said, there's plenty of circumstantial evidence. We are going to allow the verdict to stand. The jurors basically had enough to reasonably infer. From the expert witnesses and from what she was being charged with. Exactly. And just all the circumstances that you did this, sister. After the Criminal Court of Appeals unanimously affirmed the judgments, Marie then appealed her case to the Alabama Supreme Court which again affirmed the judgment of the Court of Appeals. On Sunday, February 22, 1987, two weeks after her appeal was denied by the Alabama Supreme Court, Marie was given a three-day pass to visit her husband, John Homan, who had moved to Anniston to be near his wife. So we were talking about medium and minimum security. She gets a pass. Yeah, and John Homan is the guy who actually believed her to be her twin sister. So through the course of the investigation, he's like, oh, my God, you really didn't die. You are my wife. I'm standing by you. Yes. Yeah. So crazy. And has said something to the effect of she really just did it to protect me so that I didn't find out about what they were accusing her of back in Alabama. This guy had such goggles on his eyes. So three day pass to visit your husband. What is that about? And it wasn't the first pass she'd been given. She had been given four eight hour passes in the prior couple of years. And it was because, you know, we had talked about her secretarial experience and she was an executive secretary. So she was actually allowed to do paperwork for like prison administrators. So they got to know her and she can snow anybody like we talked about. So they considered her to be quiet, a model prisoner, and the good behavior earned her all these passes. So she is literally in jail just under four years when she is getting these passes, these leaves. Yes. That's incredible. They would not have done the same thing for a man. That's very true. I think. The Sunday morning of the three-day pass, this was the third day of her three days, Marie told her husband, John, that she wanted to visit her parents' grave, which was only a couple blocks from the boarding house where they were staying, and she told him she would meet up with him at a local diner in an hour or so. When she didn't show up after a couple of hours, John returned to their room and found a note from his wife asking for his forgiveness and saying she could not go back to prison and she was going to Canada. John immediately called the police. To his credit. Yes. If I'm him, I'm like... Oh, boy. She dipped twice. She's a double dipper. (laughs) According to an Aniston Star article by Mike Stedman the day after Marie's escape, local officials had not received official notification from the state prison system that Marie was being allowed to leave the jail. However, news of Marie being given passes in the past was published the prior year in a book entitled Black Widow that had been written by a former Aniston Star reporter named R. Robin McDonald. The book revealed that Tutwiler prison officials had placed Marie on minimum security status for years. That's all she's been in here. And were allowing her to go to town on shopping trips and for dinner. Assistant Calhoun County DA Joe Hubbard, who prosecuted the case against her in 1983, was outraged that someone serving a life sentence and had a track record for escaping... <laughs> was given furlough. 
Circuit Judge Sam Monk, who presided over Marie's trial, said he was appalled to hear of her release. Quote, the conduct of prison officials in this particular case cannot, in my opinion, be defended. Unquote. I like that statement. Exactly. It's concise. Unlike us. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Unlike us who like to beat dead horses, resurrect them, and beat them again. <laughs> So this time, Marie was not missing for long. Four days after she vanished from the boarding house where she was staying with her husband while on furlough, she was found on the back porch of a house in Blue Mountain, the area outside Anniston where she grew up. The woman who found her did not recognize her, even though they went to elementary school and high school together. The woman called Anniston police and told them there was a transient woman in need of immediate help. The paramedics arrived to find Marie soaking wet, muddy, delirious, and near death. Authorities theorized that after slipping away from the boarding house, she was apparently alone in the woods with only light clothing. The four nights she spent there were cold, wet, and windy, and had low temps in the 30s and 40s. Wow. That would have been really freaking cold. Absolutely. The EMTs who examined Hilly determined she had hypothermia and took her to a nearby hospital for treatment. As Marie Hilly was arriving at the hospital, she suffered a heart attack, and they worked to revive her for more than three hours, but were unable to save her. Audrey Marie Hilly was pronounced dead at 5.06 p.m. on February 27, 1987. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And thank you for sharing with your friends and family, coworkers, colleagues, strangers you meet on the street. If you aren't following us on social media, please do so. We are at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.